Welcome to Lobster Brain, the podcast that shows you what lobsters can teach you about rewiring your brain. So why lobsters? Lobsters fight to see who becomes top lobster. If they win, their brains change to embrace their new status. If they lose, their brains change too to cope with that change in hierarchy. It's called neuroplasticity. As humans, we can rewire our brains too, but unlike lobsters, we can come back from failure and hard knocks to become even more resilient. So what are the turning points that highly successful people go through to reach top lobster status in the human world? In this podcast, you'll find out. I'm Danny Donerkey. And I'm Lisa Morton. And in this episode, you're going to hear from top lobster and top dad, Willie Donerkey. Willie is a footballer who had a long and distinguished career playing for Manchester City, as well as Burnley and Old Athletic. He's also been a coach and a manager for many years. So Danny, why did you want to interview your dad for Lobster Brain? Uh, so there's many reasons, Lisa, but I think as you will hear, he's had a big impact on many footballers' lives. And I still come across footballers today who he's impacted. And I think the saying is that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And, you know, the fact that my dad got me and my sister meditating when we were probably about three or four, obviously had a big impact on my life. And I would like to share his uniqueness and his wonderful wisdom with a wider audience. Well, it was an absolute honour to spend this time with you and your dad, Danny, because I've heard so much about him. And I think it's a really emotional conversation, actually. Yeah, I feel like it was also for me, Lisa, it's an opportunity to give my thanks and gratitude for everything that my dad has done for me in my life. So what I'm most grateful to my dad for is the fact that he came from a relationship with his father that is very typical of the high performers that we've met who've had problematic and traumatic relationships with their father who've really pushed them in, in different ways. And the beauty of my dad for me is that he didn't do that with me one bit. So Lobster Brain is about the ability we have as human beings to rewire our brains or rewrite our stories. And I think out of all the conversations we've had so far, this is a really, really clear story of how it is within our responsibility and our gift to be able to do that, that it doesn't have to be passed through generations. Yeah, Lisa, that it reminds me, my dad doesn't speak about this in the episode, but when my dad became a Scotland international, his dad was a huge football fan and a huge fan of Scotland. And when my dad got picked for Scotland, which is which was a huge honour for him, his dad said to him that he would never watch Scotland again while he played for them because he was shit. Oh my God, Danny. I mean, you could never unhear that, could you? I mean, your dad must have carried that within the whole of his life. And it's hard to imagine where your dad's father was in his own place in his own life to even be able to consider to let those words leave his lips. My nan used to say that the only two things you can never get back are the spent arrow and the spoken word. You know, I suppose in this episode, we're going to hear about the impact that that relationship has had on your dad and how he's dealt with it. 
just to let you know that this was the very first interview that Danny and I did together and we decided to get Willie to come to a fabulous yoga studio in Manchester called Block, which is a very peaceful Zen place. Um, although for some reason when we actually did this interview, there was a load of music going on, but it was really wonderful that Willie allowed us to kind of trial our first interview together with him. So we just got stuck in straight away. I read a, an article about you in The Scotsman. It was written 18 months ago, so and that was when I was interviewing Danny for my other podcast. It talked about, obviously, very sadly, you lost your mum at 12. And then your dad had to bring you up, and your dad was an alcoholic. And apart from that making me very sad, I wondered how much of that was behind your competitiveness and your <laughs> journey of self-discovery. Um, God knows. My upbringing was actually from not to five special and um, I had a lot of love and I think that's the basis of any basis of my happiness in the future. So I was born in a place called the Gorbals, which is was called the most violent place in Britain. They had the worst slums in Europe and their house was the size of this this room. So there was five of us in there. But I was, I had two older sisters, my mum and my dad, obviously. So when they, they get their first son, I was just like a little doll, you know, I was just smothered with love. I know that because then I saw my mum with my younger brother and sister. So it was a really bad environment outside. I learned strongly that all you need is love. So a lot of the people that I work with who've achieved a lot, including a lot of top-level footballers and athletes, a lot of them have really problematic relationships with their father. So I um, only met my granddad, your dad, maybe two or three times, and I've got a very small memory of that. Can you tell us more about him? I think when he was younger, there was a softer side to him. But when he came back from the war, went back to Glasgow and after basically killing people, seeing his friends being killed, to go into like a dead-end job in an in a environment where there's a lot of alcoholism, I just see what happened to him is terrible but understandable. Mm. So I, I don't really expect anything, you know, it's just a circumstance. Don't expect anything different. It's just the way it was. So when I was very young, he seemed to be happier and laughed more. As he got older and drinking more in that violent place, he just got harder and harder. You know, we're talking about competition and how you get to the top. And I'm wondering how much you think that helped you and how much it impacted you becoming a top footballer and also how that impacted you as a father? To be honest, impacted me more as a father than in football. In football, it's always just been about love of the game for me. Just love to play, love to compete. And I did tend to be a bit too competitive at times, but it taught me... You know, the, the important things, as I said, was, as a father, to love. 
just to love your kids. And it's natural. You don't need to try or anything. It's just natural. I also, I learned when I was quite young, because Dan's got a sister as well, to treat all females. If a, if a girl's older than you, treat her like you would your mother. If she's the same age, treat her like your sister. If she's younger, treat her like your daughter. That's what I've always tried to do with ladies and boys. It's just the same, to support them, be with them, be there for them always, encourage them. That's all you can do, just try and be there for them. And did you feel that's how you were treated, that you were brought up like that? Did you always feel loved, even well, after your mum died? How? Yeah, I didn't. I had a really bad, <laughs> bad relationship with my father. But when my mum died, I had three close friends, and their mums sort of looked after me, and their families sort of took me in, and I spent more time with them than with my own family, which was a shame. But they, they did really look after me. Without that, it could have been really difficult in Glasgow, you know, and mm. quite a violent place. So again, just taught me about love, mm. and they, they gave me lots. So with my own dad, that was very difficult, and I, I don't know if I told Dan this. I, sadly, you know, I really, really disliked him strongly. And when I got older, I sort of came to grips with that and sort of forgave him. But it wasn't till I was about 50 that I really forgave him. And when I did, it was such a weight off of me. I didn't even know I had. And it was giving me so much freedom to really let it go. And then understood real forgiveness. So I don't really think it made me a better, more competitive player or person, who knows. Did your dad know that you'd forgiven him? <sighs> don't think so, don't think so. But I don't think he'd care. He was hard, hard man. Mm. But he, as I said, he'd, he'd had a hard life. Yeah. Like I feel think. like it's a shame that you don't think that he would have been bothered because obviously whatever, whatever his shit was, then he wasn't able to show, the, show that he loved you. But I'm sure that beneath that, you know, that wound, whatever his wound was, that he cared deeply about you. So I'm sure that on that level that he was aware and cared. Yeah, you're probably right, Dan. But it was, you know, we, we all have this sort of shell around us to protect us. And he, obviously, through his, <laughs> where he was brought up and what he went through had a big shell, hard shell. Underneath it, everybody's the same. Underneath everybody is just um, perfect. But we build all this stuff around us and we're not open. If you went past all that, they'd, they'd be, yeah, you'd be <laughs> loving. It's fear, isn't it? That is just fear of, and being, of being vulnerable. I think even though you didn't feel nurtured by your dad, you clearly have not let that impact you and in actual fact you've, be, you've been an incredibly nurturing loving dad and Danny's told me so much about how loved he's felt all his life so that's a huge success because a lot of people could have gone completely the other way Yeah as I said Lisa the, the big thing was from not to five yeah. if you get that right for mm. all kids I think they'll be okay 
as you've said, he was an incredible father and still is. And I, I'm so grateful for that. But there was one moment he mentioned his competitive nature. Sometimes it's a bit too much. It, well, there's two moments, actually. It's coming back more. <laughs> but one was um, I was playing head tennis when I was about 15. Do you remember? <laughs> oh, here we go. We did all the time. So what time do you mean? Well, it was when I was on his team and we were playing against Joe Royal, who was the manager. And my dad was assistant manager and the coach. So they both were fiercely competitive. And I was only a young boy, so I wasn't as good as them. So I felt like my dad was on me and his competitive nature it was one of the times where that overcame the fatherhood and I just walked off and I said, you've, you've crossed the line here. <laughs> father, being a good father is more important than winning a stupid game. I do remember. Yeah, there was something in me, I don't know where it came from, that was competitive. And I think it was when I first started at Man City and it's like you're living it gets very competitive and I, I was bad tempered and that's not me but if somebody, somebody was sort of crossed the line with me I would just retaliate straight away I had no control over that something to do with bullying I think but if somebody tried to bully me no I just didn't allow that and when I first went to Man City being the only Scottish person there after a, a month or two this lad in training was, you know, leaving a bit on me, kicking me a little bit. And I just realised that you need to stand up for yourself here or you'll never... So there was just a quick fight. And that made people realise, oh, I'm not going to just go under. Lobsters again, then, I see. <laughs> <laughs> and what was it like then when you first came to Manchester? Then you'd left home what age were you when you got to 16 it was fantastic for me everybody says oh that must have been really hard leaving home for me it was like paradise mm. first thing was everybody treated you well in Manchester a really friendly place whereas in Glasgow you walk down the street everybody wants to fight you literally so these people being friendly and not bothering if you're a Catholic or a Protestant was really <laughs> The first day, my friend and me came down on trial and we, had, we went for lunch between the morning and afternoon sessions and they gave us soup and a main meal and, and afters and we just looked at each other and said, we're having this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, those simple things meant so much mm. to us. So, Dad, coming back to the top lobster, in terms of family dynamics, obviously the son, in some eyes, psychologically is trying to take over from the father and become the top lobster in a psychological sense. What sense do you make of that in terms of me and your relationship? And was it ever a point where you felt like I became top lobster or has that never happened? <laughs> <laughs> what comes to mind is my dad, one of the few things he really did well was when I was 16, he said, right, you're 16 now, you're a man, you make your own decisions. And I remember when Dan was 16, I said, similar, because I think that's right, you know, I know you're a young man, you make your own decisions, but in this house, I'm in charge. Mm. It seemed to work fine. Mm. How about now? Uh, well, to be honest, I'm still trying to find myself, let alone relationship with anybody else. And that's the basis, I think, for everything. You know, if you don't know yourself, your true self, 
how can you be true to anybody else? And, and everybody has their own, don't, don't like saying story, everybody has their own life. Now what came to mind thinking about your questions was, I think everybody, now I'm older, <laughs> a lot older than you guys, you realise that there's going to be really good times and really bad times and you just need to accept them and try and learn from them and not claim them. You know, back to what I said before, don't claim the good times or the bad times. Accept them and deal with them. Enjoy, try to enjoy it all. Mm. So you're saying that you're still looking for yourself. Mm -hmm. Do you think you'll ever find yourself? (laughs) (laughs) Do any of us find ourselves? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the wise say we're all looking in the wrong place and it's not in material stuff, it's within. I believe that. But as I said, he who claims he knows, knows nothing. And it's not about knowing, really. It's about more about being, I think. Mm. Yeah. Danny taught me that everything I need, I have. I was asked on a podcast recently, what if I had to have one thing tattooed on my body, what would it be? <laughs> and straight out with that, I would never, I'm terrified of a tattoo, wouldn't have that. But I, and I think that's what's interesting about being a top lobster is that if you reach this kind of zenith of your career in whatever it is you're doing, sports, politics, or if you're an actor, the thing that you love that makes you happy brings with it lots and lots of other stuff that might not make you happy. But the people around you who want to be a big lobster, that's the thing that they're chasing. And as you say, they are, they're the things that we think will make us happy, but absolutely don't. No, not at all. What, uh, what sense do you make of, um, you know, thinking about this top lobster thing? So you were a footballer and then an assistant manager for most of your life, you became a manager for one year. Um, like what sense do you make of the fact that you weren't top lobster in terms of the manager, you were the assistant manager? How do you think that happened? And do you think it reflects um, how you see yourself that you didn't make that step? Looking back, I was always happy doing what I was doing. And, and just circumstance led to an opportunity to become manager. And looking back on that, See, I always feel you learn by experience and I didn't have the experience to be a manager. I didn't really have the experience to be a coach, but luckily I was given time to learn it on the job. Whereas nowadays, most people don't get time in football to learn anything. It's instant success or you're out. I just loved trying to help players, really. I don't know, I don't know if this is helpful. One. one Dan knows this story, but there was a a coach called Ken Barnes at Man City when I was young. He was my coach, first team coach, and he said, coaching is S-H-I-T. And I'm like, here's the coach, and he's in this. I said, what do you mean? He says, I don't coach, I coax. And that's what he did. He just helped people and encouraged people. And as the older I get, the more I realised that that is the best way, you know, not telling people all the time and and learning by experience mm. and helping them, encouraging them, even when things go wrong. Mm. I love that. There's some humility in that, isn't there, as well? Mm. 
so obviously that I've come across a lot of players that you've, that you've worked with over the years and most of them I speak about you gushingly they loved you um, you had a big impact on many of their lives what can you tell us about those players and what they meant to you it's, it's the whole point of the job is to care for the players but <laughs> it seemed natural for me to really care about them and th there was there was one one player <laughs> He was struggling. He was overweight, unfit, and he came back this summer and he'd lost weight. He was happier, he was like enjoying training, running around. I thought, wow, something's happened in his life something for this change, because I've only seen that change twice. One other player who was frightened into it, and this player. And I saw him about 25 years later, and I said to him, I hope you don't mind me asking, but you're one of the only player I've seen who's changed completely like that, you know, from lazy and overweight and unhappy to a bright, happy, fit person. What made the change? They said, you moaning at me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I don't think I, I moaned at the players much. I really always try to encourage them and remind myself as often as possible to say, well done. Cause it's easy to just let it go past. We try and always, when somebody does it, tell them. Mm. Was that player the one who you had stay at our house in my top bunk for two weeks? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was another one. Were you on the bottom bunk? Yeah, I was scared to death. He was overweight on my top bunk. I was just going to sleep all night. <laughs> Did you have a time in your life when you thought, I've made, I've made it, you know, I am <laughs> the DPs and whatever, you Never. know, I am that lobster, no. Never. Did you not? Never. Do you think people around you kind of identified you as being that person? Were you conscious of that? Wasn't conscious of it. I was always, I've always been pretty shy and happy just to get on with my own thing and not. When, when Joe asked me to become the coach, I said, yeah, great, and I assumed I was going to be the youth coach. And he said, no, I want you to work with the first team. So I was like, wow. <laughs> but it seemed to, seemed to go well, and it just went on from there. It was no real conscious decision for me to do that. I wanted to, I wanted to be a coach. Mm -hmm. But then just opportunities come, and you search you, you go for it. What do you think he saw in you that made him ask you to do that? when you didn't feel like you had that yet yourself. He knew I loved the game, he knew I wanted to be a coach, he knew he could trust me, and I, I don't know what else. But I think that's vital. The people you work with, you need to trust. And we were good friends. That isn't a great reason to do it, just being a friend. But um, yeah, the, the balance seemed to be good. Joe's great with the media, with the public, the board, fans and all that stuff and I've always shied away from that I don't want to be involved in all that I just want to be football with the players And you felt that you were able to create that role so that you were able to focus on the stuff that you, you loved doing you didn't feel that you were pulled into stuff that you know that, that came along with the accoutrements that come along with that position No, it's changing now because it's getting more and more like teaching 
and I don't really agree with that. I see it and understand it, but it's more, I really feel you only learn by experience and encouraging them to play and practice and play and practice and more and more and love to play. Mm. But it's more getting more and more like school, you know, individual learning plans and then reports all the time, reporting on what they did every day, every session, instead of just giving them some time because that, it's got to take time. You know, the, the thing about football that I love for kids is the two, two things. First, you need to help each other and the game is teaching you to be unselfish. Instead of somebody telling you don't be greedy, the game teaches you. And also to perform an action well, you have to focus. So the game is teaching you to focus and to be unselfish. And they're the, they're the main things. You spoke about a shyness. I've recognised the shyness in myself too. And I'm wondering how much of what you're saying is what you actually loved or was kind of staying in your comfort zone? Because I'm finding that I'm really trying to push those boundaries myself and, it, and it's tough. What are your thoughts on that? You might be right, but I don't know if, for what reason... As I got older, I could connect more with the board and all that stuff. But I, maybe it's from school, even, you know, authority or whatever. I just I didn't like mixing with the boss sort of thing. I wanted to be with the, the workers. <laughs> that kind of comes back nicely to the top lobster, doesn't it? Yeah. So if you, if you associate yourself in your mind with not the top lobster, uh, then that's where you're going to stay, isn't it? It wasn't so much, I don't think, the, the school I went to, the secondary school I went to, I came from quite a rough area, but the school I went to was a posh area, and I hated it, because they, they didn't like us. There was about five or six of us from where I went, was from, went to this, was a grammar school. We like posh kids, had their own homes and all that. And the teachers sort of, Ridicule does, in a lot of ways. You know, it'd be bullying and all the rest of it. Then it was just like the way it was. But I think that might have had part of effect, the bosses and stuff. So, in terms of like your life and all the top lobsters that you've met, like how how many of them have, that you've come across have you found that have been happy and lived fulfilled lives and? And how do you compare that to the ones who aren't, the top lobsters? It's a really good question. I think top lobster in the sort of, in the world, worldly terms, I don't know any that are happy. But there's some top lobsters who are sort of, like Joe's a, a sort of naturally quite happy person. But still not real happiness. The real happiness is within, deeply within. And then when you get that happiness and good and bad comes, you can handle them. Whereas if you've not got that happiness, good and bad comes and you're like over the moon and then like mm. want to kill yourself. Mm. It's both. You, you can have really, you can be over the moon but not claim it. Mm. Just realise that this is the effect of a lot of people's work. Not just you, it's no down to you. It's a paradox, isn't it? Because most of us spend 
a lot of our lives or most of our lives trying to get to the top and be the best and have the biggest house and all of that and quite often it takes getting there to realize that it's not you don't feel how you thought mm. you would feel when you get that yeah well you know i think you've said the things that make you realize there's more to life is when something really bad happens or something you get everything and you're no, still not satisfied those two extremes but what, what came to mind listening to you was the Denzel Washington quote that I love he said you never see a U-Haul on the back of a hearse you know what a U-Haul is I don't U-Hauls <laughs> in America when everybody's moving home they get a U-Haul right. that's a van <laughs> and they put all their possessions <laughs> I love that they put all the possessions yeah. in it and then they go to the next house I've got you so there's never one on the back of a hood no that's that's well yeah no pockets in shrouds that kind of thing isn't it and as I'm getting older yeah. I realise it doesn't yeah. matter all that no. stuff at all you've mentioned a couple of times about feeling that you're getting older what do you think about when you think about death my mother-in-law passed away two or three weeks ago, and I, I used to, I used to think that was terrible. Passed away. Why don't you just say died? <laughs> you know. But now I really believe in passed away because my wife hasn't been very well, and she she's obviously upset. Her mum passed away, and I I try to say to her, it's not your mum. Her body, her body always passes on. It's natural. You're born, the body dies, but you're not the body. The body is your instrument. You know, the mind, your body, your instruments. It's not you, it's just the body that passes on. That's how I see it. Mm. So for me, it's easy to say, but I don't really believe in death. The body dies, your true self. I think that's eternal. But is that about the legacy that we leave that, that remains, or do you believe that the spirit still goes on and I don't I don't know what to call it but there's something inside us all that's still and just observing what's happening mm -hmm. and that still place is eternal mm -hmm. it's hard to talk about because it's quite a personal thing but that's that's what I believe mm -hmm. and I don't know <laughs> nobody knows but there is a place inside us all mm -hmm. that's strong and as I say, eternal, I think. I still love to coach, still love to be active, still, still love to try and help young players. And I think I can do that for quite a long time, given the opportunity. Like, like you, I've been blessed really with like a fit body, never really get much illness or anything. So physically, I can still do it. Mentally, I think I can do it. So I'll just go as long as possible. And more of appreciation, as you say. I love that that you talked about, about don't claim the highs and don't claim the lows. I love that because, you know, if you're censored, it's, you, you can, like you say, you can ride those and just experience them for what they are rather than getting yeah. completely oversold yeah. on either. Yeah, and it's not like be like boring, middle of the road. Mm. Still go for the best and mm. everything. Yeah. But sometimes you get disappointments and things go wrong. That's life. Yeah. Because also, in the, in the big picture, who cares? You know, 
as long as you're doing the best you can, that's all that matters. But for a very well-known footballer, and as I said before, you were on my bedroom wall, Willie, when, on, my, on my brother's side, not on mine, kind of David Essex or Amber on mine, but you were on, on my brother's side. You know, with that comes expectation, doesn't there, from people around you? And also you, you're catapulted into fame, you know, did it for you, because obviously you're a deep thinking person, you're philosophical and, you, and you've done that work. Were you never distracted by that? Did that never become as important as the actual ability that you had, say, as a, as a footballer? What comes to mind is that there was a time when I sort of was a little bit famous. <laughs> and, but in the summer I used to play football with Rodney Marsh, George Best, people like that, mm. who were like well-known. You know, we'd, we'd play five aside in the summer and go for a drink. And I, I somehow sensed, I've, I've got a choice to make. I can go like that or be with my family. And I chose <laughs> to be with my family. But it's easy to get caught up in all that stardom stuff. As a parent, we all want our kids to look up to us in a good way, like see us as positive role models and to feel loved and inspired by... Um, and that's just as a normal parent. So if you're like a top lobster type parent and you're a famous parent, does that responsibility weigh heavy because you're so exposed in your ability um, and your platform that, like you mentioned before, it's, it's, you can easily fall from grace or you can fall off that platform, in your case, have an injury or whatever. So is that even greater responsibility to make your kids proud of you when you're doing something that's so public? I don't think it was for me. It just seemed natural for me. Mm. And I was young. Mm. Yeah. No, it wasn't really <laughs> analysing or anything. It was just like, the other thing, apart from the, the stardom life, oh, most players played golf then. And I, I knew, to play golf well, you have to practice a couple of times a week and then play a game. And So it's like four hours each. And I just decided, well, I'm not going to play golf. I want to spend time with my kids. Mm. But it wasn't for any reason except I thought that was right. And how did you feel when Danny looked up to you so much? He told me that he used to love coming to Main Road and he used to get into the dirty baths after you'd all been in them. <laughs> that was his favourite bit, he said. I think it's still the same now, Danny, is it? Um, that he wanted to be a footballer. I mean, Danny talked a bit before about that. There's always that jostle there was in our family with my dad and my brother when my brother got older and testosterone and there was a little bit of a battle for supremacy going on in our household was that how did you feel about Danny wanting to be a footballer was that important to you or would you not have cared less if you wanted to do something else it wasn't it was important and it wasn't I just wanted them to be happy him and his sister whatever they wanted to do and as I got older I felt that I could have helped them more in football, but I went against it because I didn't want to force them into anything. Mm. I didn't want them to, you know, the, the nepotism thing. I, w- I wanted them to do what he enjoyed and what he wanted completely and not me to force them. Because I saw that a lot. Mm. Yeah. Parents pushing their kids and I didn't think that was right. Mm. And did you feel like that? You did. You felt that your dad backed up? And yeah, totally. And he said that to me before that he felt like he could have helped me and maybe pushed me more 
and for all those dads out there that feel like they need to do that then I urge them not to mm. because to give someone space and to allow them to flower into who they want to be that I think that's the greatest gift you can give anyone mm. and I want to say as well about you know obviously you came from a real uh, trauma uh, through your dad and your mum dying and and we, we speak about transgenerational trauma how it passes from one to the next and I feel like you've done an amazing job of not passing that on to me. So I'd just like to thank you for that. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but, but as I said, Dan, my first five years in, in the real worst place you could imagine was idyllic. You know, two elder sisters like spoiling me, my mum, my dad's first son, all that stuff. And that, that's, that, that you don't, like when you're that age, you don't care about possessions, do you? You just, you just need attention. Mm. And that's so in keeping with the whole lobster brain idea, isn't it? The fact that your dad was able to tap into that really wonderful, idyllic early part of his life and not take that trauma. Some people could let the trauma and that losing your mum and having that terrible relationship with your dad for a while to define them and reduce their ability to go on and do great things. So no good lobster job there <laughs> <laughs> so for our listeners who would see you as a big lobster <laughs> and they might self-identify as little lobsters what lobster learnings could you give them about life right, like I said before the big thing for me is don't worry don't worry because it's it's a waste whatever comes accept it, try and enjoy everything, but worrying, yes, waste of time. It's been so lovely to, to meet you finally and speak to you, you look so much like, you. well, <laughs> I hope it's that, I, that I cry all the time. Um, I can't believe how similar you are to Danny, and you mentioned that shyness, and I've always seen that in Danny, and that is why when the person who made me see Danny, when I opened the door and I thought, what am I doing allowing a strange man to come to my house that I don't know? I immediately connected with Danny because I could see that kind of shyness and that kindness in him, then I can see it in you. So it's been a privilege to talk to you today. Thank you. You too, thanks. Thanks, Dad. Um, it's been amazing to have you here as our first guest and as our first uh, lobster brain. <laughs> Danny, since we interviewed your dad, I've listened to the podcast a couple of times and just as I did on the day when we interviewed him, I feel very kind of safe and held in a way in that space when your dad's talking. I find it quite um, quite emotional and it kind of makes me feel that you've obviously, you, know, you have felt that at being his son and he's given you that space and that kind of relaxed um environment to become the person that you've become and it's really beautiful I can't believe you have never told me that before about what your dad's dad said to him when he we, he um, was picked for Scotland and I can't imagine how crushing that is and how you take that through your life and what was really emotional for me when I listen back to it is your dad's forgiveness of his dad when He'd had such a traumatic and complicated relationship with him. And, um, you know, I'm me from the past seven years and I've had 
a difficult relationship with my dad. Um, and although he hasn't said anything as awful as that, I've definitely felt sometimes that maybe I've not been good enough. I wasn't, he always wanted my brother to be me in a way. He wanted my brother to be the entrepreneurial one and the driven one. And my brother was academic and wasn't that person. So there was always that conflict. I always knew that he kind of, it felt like he wished that his son was doing that, but, and I still carry that trauma and I don't speak to my dad. And I'm thinking when I listen to it, which is why I was crying in Selfridges is that, you know, I need to forgive him because he had difficult circumstances. You know, he grew up in Salford. They didn't have very much. His father was very remote. He didn't have a relationship with his dad till he was 18. And then his dad died as soon as he started speaking to each other. So I think with their circumstances, you have to take into account somehow. And um, yeah, and it's made me think about just forgiving my dad, whether, whether he knows or not. It is important to say, though, that just like your dad said, and also actually Rodney Marsh, show me the, the person, show me the boy at five, you know, those foundational years are so important. And when I look back to my childhood, I had a wonderful family life and I felt very secure and very loved and it was a very happy time. Yeah, I think uh, it's really powerful, Lisa, the way that you are so open and vulnerable about it. And if my dad's example of forgiving his dad uh, leads to you and anyone else even thinking about and opening their heart to difficult relationships that they have, then it's a good job that we did the podcast. And, you know, families are complex. And we're all born into complex relationships. And my dad, uh, his, uh, his mum died when he was 12. And his sense is that his dad kind of um, projected the blame onto him. And, you know, from 12, his, his dad had the responsibility of him and all his sisters. They lived in one bed in a tiny room. Um, and my dad felt that he hated him. And he actually voiced that as well. So for a man whose father said he was a shit footballer and wouldn't watch him uh, play for Scotland, even though he was a huge football fan and Scotland fan, for someone like that to be able to forgive his father is, you know, it just shows that that path to forgiveness is there for all of us. And for my dad, I know it took him a lot of work. You know, he was 50 when he eventually found that forgiveness. And so I think it takes work, um, but I feel like that is what we're here for, to to unpack those relationships and, and do the work that we need to do in this lifetime. Absolutely. And, you know, it's really hard that his dad never said he was proud of him and he said the opposite but it feels that your dad is so proud of you. Do you feel that? Do you feel that emotion from your dad? Yeah, definitely. I've, you know, I've felt that throughout my life. And lately he started um, commenting on my LinkedIn posts and <laughs> that um, <laughs> he's been like saying some of his uh, crazy random things on LinkedIn, but you know, it, that in itself, it just shows uh, the support that's always been there from him and my mum. And I mean, we all have trauma that we need to kind of work through in life, but 
the foundation of having two parents um, so supportive and loving, there's no greater foundation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Lobster Brain. We'll be back after Easter chatting to another top lobster about the obstacles they've overcome in order to rewire their brain for success. And in the meantime, please remember to follow and share this podcast. That way more people will get to hear about Lobster Brain and the next episode will drop into your feed as soon as it's available.